Some of you are just messing with me and wiggling the pages. But. <laughs> first Corinthians chapter two, Paul says, he's talking about the time when he first came to Corinth and introduced himself to these people. And he says, and I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Those are the same words. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul is saying, you know, remember how it was when I first came to you? I wasn't trying to impress you with how brilliant I was. I didn't come off with a really slick presentation where you go, wow, is that Paul smart? Now, Paul definitely had the ability to do that. Educated at the feet of Gamaliel, a brilliant man, no doubt. He wrote most of the New Testament. He could have been impressive if he wanted to be, but he chose not to be. And instead, he says, hey, I came to you simply in fear and trembling. I wasn't it's not that he was scared. It was that he came to them standing basically naked and exposed to them, allowing himself to be, to be vulnerable, to say, look, it's not about me intimidating you into believing this. This is the simple truth, and so I'm going to declare it simply, just Jesus and him crucified. Now, over in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Just a little bit past 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He's talking about when Titus came to them, to the Corinthians. Titus, a young pastor, and he's talking about how refreshing he was and what a blessing he was. But in verse 14, he says, If anything I have boasted to him about you, I'm not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. I bragged about him, I bragged about you, and it was all true. And his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all. How with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. Again, the same term in looking at the context, this contact of Titus with the, with the Corinthian Christians, you get the idea again that what he's talking about isn't a fear and trembling that's anticipating some negative event that's happening. It's just like, it's sort of like, you know, if there are certain people who if they come to your house, you feel like you have to get all fixed up and dressed and have everything look just right. There are other people who when they come to your house, you don't feel like you have to do anything. They can just drop in. They can stop in and it's fine. You would never think of putting on makeup because this person's coming over or something like that. Or maybe you would, I don't know, I don't. But uh, it's kind of the idea, it's a vulnerability that goes, you know what, I am what I am like Popeye said, and that's all that I am. I, here I am, warts and all. Here I am just presenting myself to you. I'm not dolled up. I'm not fancy. I'm vulnerable. Now, one more passage to turn to is Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul uses this term again as he's talking about servants serving their masters. And Paul was dealing with masters who were Christians, who had slaves who worked for them, and 
the relationship that they were to have. And in verse 5 of Ephesians 6, he said, Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling. Now you go, yeah, you better fear your master. They'll beat you. Now, these were bond servants who had chosen to put themselves in the employment of someone. So is this really what most bosses want, that you're going to be scared, that you're going to pound them? If you read on, it becomes clear. He says, in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Again, fear and trembling. Now, looking at those other passages where he used the term, you start to get the picture that it really does fit with everything else that he is saying here. And the idea is keep working on your relationship with him and do it in a way that allows a vulnerability, that allows you to take a risk, that allows you to take chances, to expose yourself as who you are and open yourself up. Now, again, in the context, if you're ever going to decide to be real, if you're ever going to decide to reach other people and allow them to reach you, it can only happen if you quit playing the religious games. It can only happen when you allow yourself to be yourself. Quit trying to impress other people. Quit trying to be someone that you aren't. Will you risk showing someone else who you are? Will you take that chance to let somebody else know that you have a need or to give of yourself to reach out to someone else to meet that need? That's what he's talking about. That's what the life of salvation is all about because God will be saving you constantly, but he will save you from things using other people to do it and he will allow you to rescue others. It's the whole idea that he's proposing here and it happens when we will allow it to happen, when we don't give up. Most of us as little kids are born vulnerable. It takes a while. It's why when I dedicate babies, I like to do it when they're really small. It's not just because it hurts your back to lift a big kid. It's because kids start to learn after a while through separation anxiety and other things that we put them through that they don't want to be with anyone but their mom or dad. And they begin to protect themselves. And it's really not an instinct because a new baby doesn't have that feeling at all. It's after a while we start to learn there are some people I just don't want to be with. And it's funny because for the rest of our life, we're the same way. Now, we force ourselves to reveal a little bit of ourselves to somebody, but in reality, though we don't openly cry like little babies, so often that's how we live our lives. But see, according to what Paul is teaching us here in Philippians 2, we are created to function in community. We're created to get along with others, to minister to others and to allow them to minister to us. But you know, sometimes when you're vulnerable, you get hurt. And as a result, we start to learn the lesson of protection. We start to be safe. And when you make that decision to try to be safe, you're making a decision to give up on that which God wants to do in your life. There are some people, and it's really sad, who get burned in a relationship somewhere down the road, and they just decide that's it. I am just not ever going to trust anyone again. 
I am never going to give of myself in that way. I'm never, I am going to be safe. And I know people, sadly to say, who spend their whole lives alone because of that defense mechanism that says, I've been hurt and it's not going to happen again. The amazing thing that happens when we do that is we're just hurt all the time. We're hurting ourselves and we're hurting others. People who we have an opportunity to minister to, we don't do it because we don't want to take that chance. And people who could love us and minister to us, we won't let them get that close. We back them off the plate because, well, I've been there before and it hurts. I I know one guy, I know several I could use as an example, but one who definitely isn't here this morning, who he's like... (laughs) Uh, he's in his early 60s and never been married, which is fine if God calls you to that, but God hasn't called him to that. The guy's always wanted to get married. And you think, okay, I can see this. He's a real grotesque guy. Now, he's a great-looking guy. He has a good job. A lot of and some of you ladies are going, uh, you got his phone number? But <laughs> no, he's a great guy, but, you know, never been married. He's been engaged a bunch of times. And one time, he was actually at the wedding rehearsal, and he bailed. (laughs) And you go, okay, this guy has some commitment issues. Yeah, no doubt about it. And yet, how many of us in different ways, and some of us even in the middle of our relationships, we build walls, we shut ourselves off, we won't open up, because we just don't want to take that risk. And yet, what happens when you take the risk? Ultimately, everything good that's ever happened in your life came because you took some risk. You stepped out a little bit. You opened yourself up. You made yourself vulnerable. Fear and trembling, yeah, but it's that vulnerability, that honesty that goes, this is who I am. And someone, somewhere, decided that, you know, I can deal with who you are. I kind of think it's cute. I like it. And you go, wow, does that feel good? Is that amazing? And yet, I believe that our tendency is to keep shutting ourselves off, to protect ourselves from the inevitable pain that results from relationships. And it's a sad thing when people's lives are doomed. What Paul is saying here, though, is, you know what, I know this is risky and I know that it hurts. That life of community that I'm talking about where we each put each other ahead of us, where I submit myself in a way that allows me to give what I think I don't even have, it's a step of faith. But it's what salvation is ultimately. When you first came to the Lord, how did you come? You came to Him and said, man, I'm a mess. I am just a total mess. And I can't do anything. I'm at the end of my rope, and I need help desperately. And Jesus Christ came, and he met you, and he saved you. But guess what? You're still a mess. You still need his help every second. And all he's saying is, continue to realize that you need me. Continue to realize that you need others. And continue to accept that there are others who need you desperately, who need you so much that you have to risk. You have to allow yourself to be vulnerable enough for me to work my salvation, for me to rescue others and you mutually. And in the same way that Jesus said, you know what, it was well worth it to become a man, to become a servant, to humble myself, to go to death, even the death on the cross. It was so worth it because I get to be with you. So God is telling each of us, 
I know how hard it is to not hide behind who people think you are. I know how hard it is to not hang on to your credentials, to what you've earned. But I am telling you, the only way life really works, your only salvation is to allow yourself to be real and to be vulnerable again, even though it's hurt before. That's what he is calling us to do. Don't stop short. Again, many people forget this lesson, and somewhere down the road, all of a sudden it's like, you know what? I remember being vulnerable, and boy, God met me there, and I was blessed, but over time, I just don't want anybody to know me. I don't want to do that again. It was, it was I don't know, I just kind of deteriorated in this area. But he says, look, it's worth it. Does it hurt to be vulnerable? Absolutely, but it's worth it. Does it, is it sometimes lonely to extend yourself and have people not respond? Absolutely, but it's worth it. And you'll never be alone because the one who emptied himself is the one who stands beside you and who loves you and who is calling you to a much better life than what you're living. And so, as he says, be real. In my presence, out of my presence, stop playing games. But take salvation seriously enough that you will allow yourself to do what Jesus Christ exemplified for us, that you'll take those chances, that you will go ahead and reach out to others when you feel like you don't have anything left. Now, he doesn't leave it there because in verse 13 he says, for, in other words, here's why, here's how you can do this. We've seen the example of Jesus. Now I've laid it out. I've spelled it out to you, but here's why. For it is God. I like that. It is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Now, again, it seems kind of contradictory. Work out your salvation, and now it's God who works in you. It's a different word for work, by the way. The first one that comes from the root ergo, which is more working like this is your job, this is what you do. This is a word that actually transliterated into English is where we get the word energize or energy. It's energeo is the Greek word. What he's saying is, understand this. God is the one who energizes you. God is the one who is working by his power in your life. God is at work. I think a lot of times we quit because we think he's not working anymore. We think, yeah, God used to work, but I rejected him enough, and he's pretty much left me on my own now. You're not on your own. If you realize how God is working in your life, you'll go, I can love again. I can open up again. I can reach out. I can, I can do this because, see, it's God who's giving me the strength. He doesn't tell you to do something that he won't give you the energy to do it. We get worn out because our own energy falls short of this goal. But we need to understand it's God who's energizing us. And it says, for it is God who's energizing us to will and to do. That word to do there should be translated work if you're going to translate the other one work because it's the same word, to energize. What he's saying is God is working in us in the area of the will and in the area of the energizing, the work, the productivity. God is working in us in these areas. Why is this important? Because the truth is I don't want what God wants. 
you know, I look at, okay, God tells me to do this, but I would rather do this. The problem is with my choices. I have a history of making bad choices. And habitually, I will continue to make bad choices. So, and, and it isn't God's desire to just train us, like beat us into submission. It's like, oh, you know, I'll break your will. God isn't interested in breaking our will. He's interested in transforming our will. The awesome thing is, what God wants to do as He works in us, as He energizes us, He wants to work in our will in such a way that He causes us to want different things. That He causes us to start to care about and to desire the things that are coming from Him. The Bible tells us that God will give us the desires of our heart. So that's His plan for you. So what do we do? Are you willing for him to change what you want? I mean, we change what we want all the time. We're all so fickle. Can you remember things that you wanted so bad that you never got and now you don't want them anymore? For me, one of the things was, you know, with cars and guys in their cars, you know how it is. You get an idea that the car's really cool. And there, when Mazda came out with the RX-7, I thought, that is the coolest car ever because, oh, it's not as nice as a Ferrari or a Porsche or something, but I knew I was never going to get one of those. But the Mazda was an inexpensive car that was fast. That rotary engine, it was real torquey and handled well, hung low to the ground. It was just a great car. And I, a friend of mine had one, and I drove it up in the mountains one time, and it's like, oh, man, i got to get one of these. But, you know, it, I wanted one for several years. Now, don't go buy me one now. I really, I don't want one <laughs> anymore. They're junk. But there was a period of time when it was like, man, an RX-7. And I could have afforded them. I certainly bought lots of cars during that time, but never found the right deal. Didn't, I've never bought a new car, so I wasn't going to do that. But, you know, you'd see one, and it's like, it's pretty nice, but there's something wrong with it. Or the guy that's selling it just seems like a shyster or whatever. And I never got my RX-7. But over time, I got over it. I just dealt with it, and you know, it's an amazing thing. I don't want an RX-7 now. I don't really want any kind of car. I haven't craved a car in a long time. Just get me where I'm going. But what happens is our will changes. But here's the thing. If while I was just absolutely in love with the idea of an RX-7, would I have been willing to say, God, I'm willing for you to take away that desire? I'm like, no, I don't want God to take away the desire. God, please don't make me want another Volkswagen. I, I've never wanted all the others I had, you know. And, but for us, the application here is this. Are you willing to let God work on your will? Will you come to him and say, God, you can work on my will. And you can give me the energy, the power, the finishing strength that I can continue to plod along in my salvation, cooperating with you and serving others and valuing others over myself. God, if you're willing to do that. See, we tend to think that God just wants really crummy stuff for us. In fact, we think that God wants whatever's contrary to what we want. You know, you hear people say, Oh, don't tell God that you don't want to be a missionary to Africa because then you're going to have to go there and eat bugs. And it's sad. That's kind of the way people think about God. If you want something, <laughs> you don't have a chance of getting it. 
What you have to do is trick God into going, oh God, please, I'm so lonely. Please don't, whatever you do, bring along a supermodel who falls in love with me. That would be all. It's like, okay, what's going on? But it's because we have this dopey idea of God that like he wants to mess our life up. Will we trust him? And what it comes down to, I think, also is the misunderstanding that comes from the end of this verse. God is working or energizing us to will and to be energized for his good pleasure. I have heard many sermons taught on this passage that give such an unfair idea about God because we go, it's for his pleasure. You've got to learn it. All of life is about God's pleasure. It's not yours. Your pleasure doesn't matter. It's God that needs to be happy. We need to butter him up. His pleasure, our misery, that's the way life works. But there's something interesting about that little phrase there. Take a look at it and see if you notice anything different about the word his. It's capitalized, it's talking about God, but something else, it's in italics. Now, in the Bible, when it puts it in italics, it's not so that preachers can go, it's his good pleasure. It's not an emphasis. What italics mean in your Bible is the word's not there in the original. Someone decided to stick it in there because they thought it would make more sense. And I'm always wary of italicized words in the Bible. Sometimes they're there for a good reason. Other times they're there because somebody was looking at it and saying, God is working in you to do pleasure? And we uh, can't mean that. It can't be that God wants to make you feel good. Oh, it must be His pleasure. Put it in italics. Nobody will notice. It'll be okay. You know, it's so unfair to God when we get the idea that we've got his pleasure and we've got our pleasure. And what we need to do is give up what feels good to us so that God will feel good. So that we know we have the satisfaction of knowing that we're miserable for Jesus. Do you understand? God wants you to feel pleasure. God wants you to feel good. He wants you to be satisfied. He wants you to have joy, real joy, not some phony spiritual joy that doesn't show but actually wants it to look like you're having a good time and to feel that way. He does. It's why he's done everything that he's done for you, not to make you miserable, but to give you pleasure, to help you to enjoy life. And so the point here is, will you trust God enough to know that he wants to make you feel good, that he knows how best to bring pleasure into your life. See, the truth is God's pleasure and my pleasure, they're the same thing. He wants me to have a good time. He wants me to be blessed. He wants me to be fulfilled as much as I do, but he knows more how to get me there. So do I trust him enough that I'll go, God, I will let you work in my life because I know ultimately I'm gonna go, oh man, was that worth it? Was that a great deal? How many people that you've been involved in, how many people that you are now married to, that you love, at one point you were like, I ain't doing this. There's no way. It would be miserable to be married to someone like that. Now, some of you were right. But, <laughs> but what happens as you go, okay, I'll take a chance. And it's like, man, I never knew it could be so good. It's really awesome. I never knew things could hurt so badly, but it's worth it. It really is. Now we're talking about God. Will we trust him? Will we believe that he is going to take care of us and bless us in a way that allows us to take that step 
in fear and trembling of saying, okay, I'm going to be myself. I'm going to let down my defenses. I'm going to make myself vulnerable. I'm going to give when I don't know if it's going to be given back. I'm going to reach out and love someone when I don't know if they're going to love me back. But you know, I know that God's working in me and he can give me the energy to do this. He can empower me to do this. And then ultimately, he knows what's going to satisfy me and bring joy into my life. My misery wasn't his fault. I would suggest that most of the misery in our life comes from not doing this, from not allowing ourselves to be rescued. Sometimes God was trying to rescue us and we wouldn't let him do it because we'd rather play our little games because we would rather go, no, God, I'm not gonna let you change me. I don't want you to change me. You don't ever see God coming and just forcing change on people. He very gently loves us and cares about us and goes, well, are you willing? Often when people are in a position of pain in their lives and, and they have a feeling they know what God wants them to do, do but they really don't want to do it, I'll go, you know, you don't have to do it. But just will you do this? Will you say, God, would you make me willing to do this? Would you... If you want, if you change my will, and if you give me the strength, I'll do it. So often, we don't want to do that because we're afraid God will actually do it, and we don't want to change. But if you don't change, you're going to stay just as happy and just as miserable as you are right now, except the years won't be kind to you, and misery will more and more take over for that temporary happiness that you've purchased for yourself. And so, the choice for all of us, is, okay, he has said, you're created in a way that your joy is going to come by putting others first. Your joy is going to come as you extend yourself, as you open yourself, as you are available and vulnerable to others. And, and you're going to see there's going to be great pleasure and great joy that comes from it. It may hurt, it may be difficult, but man, the glory that's coming from that, the joy that's set before you, it's unbelievable. God has such great things for you. But this is a decision that you have to make for yourself. And I have to make it for myself. He says, work out or work through or work to the end of your own salvation. This is your part. Nothing that you do can earn salvation. It's not a deal like, okay, do this and then you'll be worthy of salvation. He's already established that you're worthy of salvation because of what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. But what this is about is, do you want to keep living the way you are as a phony? Or will you ever decide to finally be vulnerable, to reach out and realize that life is about sharing, that life is about participating, that life is an ongoing struggle with the desire that we have to protect ourselves and to cut ourselves off from everything that God wants to do. And this has to be our choice. Oh, many of us just like it when we're safe. We go, you know what? I don't want more pleasure. I just don't want more pain. And so I'll protect myself for my own survival. That's your choice. That's your deal. But God has something better. And if you just knew him, you'd realize, wow, so much more pleasure that you could have. Life could be so much better than it is. He doesn't want you to be alone. 
It's not good that man would be alone, he said in Genesis. And so for each of us, you know, I know it's risky, but you have to make that choice. Will you take the chance, take the risk of being vulnerable? And that vulnerability is initially about reaching out and serving someone else and putting them first, but also allowing that to be reciprocated, allowing that to happen in your life as well, and finally joining the team, joining the club, and actually being a part of everyone else, being a part of the church. I think one reason why people hop from church to church all the time is because they're afraid of getting too involved, getting hooked in, having everybody know your business, you know, and it's like going to a small church or being in a small town. It's like, man, do I want to get out of here? I'm sick of everyone knowing what's going on. You know, being anonymous doesn't ever give you joy. It will never be fulfilling for you. It's through being connected that we discover why we were created and how we were created. And you can trust God enough that you can take that chance. But it's your choice, it's your decision. It was the decision that you made when you initially accepted Jesus Christ, but it's a decision that you need to make every day of your life, sometimes by the hour or even by the minute, as to, you wanna fake it or do you want the real thing? Man, God's pleasure, that's your pleasure too. He knows what's best for you. And he says it's worth it. He says, I took the chance and it was worth it for me. Well, didn't, when Jesus came, didn't he know a bunch of people were gonna reject him? Didn't he know that when he came unto his own, his own would receive him not, as John put it? Of course he did, he knows everything. But he knew that you would accept him. And he said, it's worth it. If only one person accepts me, it's worth it, I'll do it. You're going to win some and you're going to lose some in this love business. But taking the chance is always going to be worth it. It's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. You've heard that. You know, but then there comes Cat Stevens or Rod Stewart wrote the song. I think the first cut is the deepest. And, and you're like, okay, what is it? Yeah, I know. It is. They're both true. And the truth is, we need to let down our barriers and become a part of the community of God, become a part of the family of God. And we'll discover in that pleasure like we couldn't even imagine. But it's our decision individually. You need to take it to the end. You need to work out your own salvation in this way. Let's pray.